Let's uh, go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we just want to thank you for your amazing grace. The fact that you save us and redeem us. And Lord, just treat us so kindly and tenderly through our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that you have sent your Son to die on the cross for our sins. And that you have worked to draw us to yourself in saving faith. To adopt us as your children to bring us into your family and to give us of your spirit to empower our lives daily, Lord, to live for you. Lord, God, help us now as we open up your word. Lord, help us, Lord, to uh, guard against distractions that would take our minds off the subject at hand, off the scriptures here. Help us to be sensitive to the working of your spirit, either in conviction of sin or Lord, conviction of abandoning the things that we need to abandon, at least in in thought. Help us to be sensitive, Lord, to the teaching of your word as your spirit works within us to teach us the things that we need to learn this morning. Help us now as we uh, turn to your word to hear from you, Lord, and shepherd us through your word. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. This morning we're going to continue discussing and really finishing out a section from verses 19 to 24 about blessed assurance. And we've been looking at this for the past, this is now the third week we've been looking at this. And again, I want to just ask you, are those words, blessed assurance, words that you can genuinely claim? We want to continue to apply what we're learning to our lives. This isn't just dry theology, this is very practical to our everyday lives. If you're a genuine believer, that it's God's will for you to know uh, that, you are, that, that you are His child. If it is God's will for you, it is, uh, it, I should say, that if you are His child, it is His will for you that you joyfully exclaim the words, Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. If you are truly saved, that God wants you to know that. And we looked at numerous New Testament references last week uh, that, re- that regard or look at or mention God's peace, which is to be had by all of those who call the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Those who are granted the grace from God also are granted the peace that comes from God. 18 of the 21 New Te- Testament epistles plus Revelation mention that peace comes from God. It is an important theme of the New Testament. There can be no assurance of peace without assurance of salvation. Those, those go together. Now, if you, if you, don't, you, you don't have to believe in assurance of salvation to be saved. It's not an essential doctrine from that point of view. It's not an essential doctrine for justification. But that doesn't mean that it's not important. The doctrine of assurance is important. It's extremely important. It's an extremely important doctrine that influences our state of mind and how we live for the Lord each and every day. And it contributes to our ability to rejoice in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's exceedingly difficult to rejoice in the Lord Jesus Christ and joyfully live for Christ without assurance of salvation. On this, per, on this point, Spurgeon once told his church this, quote, Nobody ever sings over uncertain blessings. I say again, nobody ever sings over an uncertain pardon. A doubt as to our forgiveness is fatal to all joy. 
for it lets in the dread fear of divine wrath. I'll repeat that. It is fatal to all joy, for it lets in the dread fear of divine wrath. Unquote. See, the world has lost, to a large extent, the dread of the wrath of God. Right? We are told to fear God, not only fear His judgment, but even as, even as those who have been adopted into His family, we are called to fear Him in a reverential and worship sense. He is our God. And, and if we don't have assurance, the dread of that judgment overshadows the joy. And it's just one of the many reasons why God wants us to know that we are truly His children, if indeed we are. Listen to God himself speak to you through 1 John 5.13, just by way of reminder. John says this, These things I have written to you, who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. That you know that you have eternal life. Now, how are we, who believe in the name of the Son of God, to know that we have eternal life? Well, if, if John wants us to know that we have eternal life, what do you think he's going to fill with his letter? He's going to give us ways to know that we have eternal life. He's just, not, he's just not wishing this. He's just not praying for it. He's writing an epistle for this purpose. And in particular, the verses that we're looking at this morning, verses 19 to 24... He he's, writes in a very compact fashion, uh, builders of assurance of our salvation. So let's read that together. First John 3, and again we'll read verses 19 to 24. We know by this that we are of the truth and will assure our heart before him. And whatever our heart condemns us, for God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from Him, because we keep His commandments and do the things that are pleasing in His sight. This is His commandment, that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as He commanded us. The one who keeps His commandments abides in Him, and He in Him. We know by this that He abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. Beloved, we find assurance by prayerfully applying the, the test of faith that John provides us in this epistle. But specifically, from verses 19 to 24, John provides us six builders of assurance, six specific contributors to the assurance of salvation. So we've been looking at these each uh, the last several weeks. So I'll just review the first four. First, John tells us that blessed assurance comes from sacrificial love of the brethren. It comes from beginning of verse 19, where he says, We will know by this that we are of the truth, and will assure our heart before him. Right? Kind of forming a, a hinge, if you will, looking back, but also looking forward. It is that love, that sacrificial love of the brethren, by which we know that we are a true child of God. To that... In verses 19 and 20, he adds this, Blessed assurance comes from reliance upon God's omniscience. So when our conscience convicts us, we can flee to God, knowing knowing that there's not something new he's going to um, find in us and reject us. He knows all of our sin. In fact, he's forgiven all of our sin. We flee to that omniscience and to the completeness of his forgiveness. And that builds assurance. Because, beloved, those who flee from God are the ones who don't know him. Those who flee to God when we're convicted of sin are the ones who know him. 
Blessed assurance also comes from a clear conscience. We see this from verse 21, that there are times where our heart does not condemn us. Again, that word heart is referring to the conscience. The uncondemning heart, in other words, the clean conscience, results in confidence in God's presence, specifically the the confidence to go to him in prayer, which is the very thing that we typically don't want to do when we know that we've sinned, right? Uh, And it's the very thing that Satan doesn't want us to do is to go to God in prayer. Fourthly, blessed assurance comes from the very thing we're talking about, from prayer. When when we pray and the Lord answers those requests, we know that he has heard us. And he's not going to hear the prayer of an unbeliever. The, The only prayer of an unbeliever that God hears is the prayer of repentance and faith in Christ. And that's it. The rest are like bouncing off a, a, a brass ceiling. And it's not that he doesn't know that they're praying. It's just that he has no interest in their prayers until they are in submission to him. But the prayers of his children, he listens to. In fact, Scripture says that these are like sweet incense before him. And reminder, beloved, that, that, that the way that John words this can lead to the misunderstanding that, if we, that we must obey in order to get answers to prayer. That's not what John's saying. He's saying this obedience that he speaks about here is evidence that we really truly know God, and, and therefore, because we truly know God, then God answers our prayers. The Father answers our prayers through Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ provides us the, the ultimate and the, and the perfect favor Uh, that we need. In fact, Jesus Christ is the only favor with God that we'll ever need. And so there's nothing that we can add to that by obedience or anything else. So to these, to to, uh, sacrificial love of the brethren, reliance upon God's omniscience, a clear conscience, and prayer, we add two more things this morning from verses 23 and 24. Now verses 23 and 24 function as a summary of what John has already written, but it also serves as a transition to the things yet on his mind. John has a masterful way of, of doing this, moving from text to text. It's, it's one, of the way, one of the reasons why it's so difficult to outline uh, the book of uh, First John, because of the way that he mixes, he moves from one topic to another, not in clear, distinct ways necessarily like Paul does, but he blends them as he moves from one to the other. John summarizes at the same time he transitions to provide us two more builders of our assurance, the the fifth and the sixth builder of our assurance of faith. And the fifth is this, that blessed assurance comes from obedience. We see this from verse 23 in the beginning of verse 24. This is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. The one who keeps his commandments abides in him and he in him. Now let's just walk through what this passage means. He begins by saying, this is the commandment, the beginning of verse 23. Notice that John here is not saying this, these are the commandments, but this is the commandment. With this phrase, John is boiling down all the various commands that he has talked about, about pursuing righteousness or living in righteousness, about love of the brethren, about obedience. He is, he is boiling it all down to one command. And he's doing this for a reason. Now, he, now, very quickly, he splits us out into what I call two subcommands or two subcomponents. And we, we see those very, very quickly. We believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. But he unifies these by saying this is his commandment. 
Not these are his commandments, but this is his commandment. John is bringing together these two subcomponents in, in a unified whole in order to show that the two must be true in order for us to have assurance of salvation. One without the other leads to doubt. The two together lead to assurance. In fact, we would say where these two things are not together, there is no true salvation and hence no true assurance of salvation. If you are a true believer, you cannot have one without another. You cannot simply believe without loving the brethren, nor can you love the brethren without believing in Jesus Christ. One without the other is like trying to drive a train on a track with only one rail. It doesn't work very well. And I'm not talking about the monorails that you see every once in a while. I'm talking about standard trains. They don't work with one rail. They need both rails to go. The unity of this is also illustrated just in an everyday, just benign thing as as your car. When you get in your car, when you drove here this morning, you didn't think about it, but that car required a lot of components to work together. And since I'm in the tire and brake business, I'll just use an illustration from that. It require, Your car requires a tire and wheel together in what we call an assembly. The tire and wheel must function together. The two components apart, pretty much worthless to your car. You can take a tire and try to mount it on your car, but it's really not going to work. Right? It's not going to work at all. It'll just roll down the, the hill all by itself, independent of the car. If you put the wheel, which for those who don't know, a tire is not a wheel. Wheel's that the metal part. So if you put the wheel on your car without a tire, you're just going to skid and spin. Like sometimes you see in the police chases when the police end up spiking someone's tires and all they have left is the metal wheels. It doesn't doesn't go very well. Skids and you're going to end up crashing and wrecking your car. Those two together, the tire and the wheel together, make the car go. It takes all the energy of the car, puts it, translates it into the ground or into your car and pushes off, creates the force that makes that vehicle go. That's what John is saying when he talks about uniting belief in Christ and love of the brethren. They have to be together. John is emphasizing the unity of what God is commanding, and that that both these components, belief in Christ and love in the brethren, must be there. Now he says, this is his commandment. And I'll just point out, For those that are seeking to know the will of God, this is his will for you. Or other places of scripture we could go to see that. But very clearly, this this should be a big flag for you getting your attention. This is God's will for you. If If it is his commandment, it is his will for you. And this one command has two subcomponents. So let's look at those. Those two subcomponents are belief in Christ and love of the brethren. So the first part is that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ. This is a command. Right? And I'll put that as a command. When we go to evangelize, we can invite people to know Christ. We can proclaim the gospel. But remember that God has already commanded that they believe in Him. And if they don't believe, it is disobedience to Him. Right? This, is, this is something that's, that uh, is maybe difficult for us to understand... But it is true. God commands the unbelieving to repent, and he commands them to believe. We see this in multiple places of the scriptures. But it is a commandment. And we see it very clearly here. This is his commandment, 
that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ. And that's not just talking to believers. That's, that's talking in a larger scale, larger tech, uh, context, to all people that God has created. Now, beloved, understand that this is the first time that John has used the word believe in this epistle. And John will go on to use the word believe six more times in chapters 4 and 5. It's another example of how John takes something he hasn't directly mentioned, um, but then he's going to mention it and mention it quite a few more times. In using the word uh, believe, we need to understand the word can mean uh, trust. Uh, It can be translated trust. Which, which helps us understand that when we talk about believe, we're not just talking about intellectual facts. We're referring to um, truths of Christ that are held dear in, in practical trust uh, to us. And this is just not theoretical knowledge, not just agreement with, with, a, with a factoid. This is something that, that we, in fact, trust that results in a practical trust. It is, a, it is certainly a belief in truth, but it's a belief in truth that results in practical trust. For example, um, we, are, we are often given an illustration um, of faith by looking at a, a parachute. You can believe that a parachute can save your life. I mean, if the air, you're on an airplane, the airplane, some of you say, I would never jump on an airplane that wasn't crashing. So we'll just make the illustration, the airplane's crashing, right? Which is a good illustration of our life. We're in a collision course with God's judgment. So we're on a plane that's crashing, it's, it's, it's de- descending, and you have a parachute. And you say, yes, I know this can save my life. But if you never put it on, you're going to die in that airplane when it crashes. So... Faith, belief, what we're talking about is putting the parachute on and jumping out of the airplane so that the parachute, when it, when it fully fill, fills with air, can save your life. Right? So that's, that's a very courageous thing to, to do that, to fully trust that parachute. Well, that's what the kind of belief is in this case. It's, it's casting all of your hopes upon Christ. Such that if Christ cannot save you, you shall not be saved. That's, what that, that's, that's why the parachute is such a perfect example. If that chute fails to save you, you're dead. And beloved, we should know that if Christ should fail to save, there is no other hope. We are dead. But that is a kind of full-out uh, trust in Christ that results in salvation. It is not Christ plus other things. Not Christ plus anything else. It is faith in Christ. Faith alone in Christ alone plus nothing. Plus nothing. Now this command to believe likely refers to the initial act of faith. The initial belief that, that is the instrument of our salvation. As the apostle declares in Ephesians 2.8.9, You have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Understand that belief in Christ is the God-given instrument that we must exercise so that we will be saved. Here again, we've talked about before um, about things that 
are difficult to understand. From one perspective, we're commanded to do them. From another perspective, it's a gift of God. So faith is that way in this case. It is something that we're commanded. We're commanded to believe, and yet that, that belief, um, that faith, is a gift of God. In Romans chapter 10, verse 9, we're told this. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus says, Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you sh- will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness. And with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, Whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's a a truth, beloved, that that we can affirm at the same time as, as we affirm that God is sovereign in salvation. Now, what does it mean to to believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ? We talked about how uh, belief is is trusting, but John uses the phrase, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the use of the phrase, in the name of, is a biblical way of identifying with the person that that is so named. Uh, We see this, for example, in Jesus' words when He commands His church, his, His followers, in Matthew 28, 19, to baptize. He's, he baptized the disciples of Jesus. He says they are to be baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. That is, in identifying with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, our one God in three persons. Luke gives us an example of this at Acts 4.12. It actually uh, comes from the words of Peter. There, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. No other name. We see another example of this in 3 John uh, 5, verses 5 to 7. There, John says, Beloved, you are acting faithfully in whatever you accomplish for the brethren, and especially when they are strangers. And they have testified of your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. Listen, for they went out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. There they don't even say the name of Christ. John just says, for the sake of the name. Specifically referring to Christ, the name of Christ. But but that phrase identifies, uh, identifies the person uh, that you are identifying with, the person that you're having trust in or faith in, or in this case, going out as an evangelist on behalf of. So he says that the command there is to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. And, and each of these uh, words, each of these terms is important. First, look at his son. The phrase his son refers to the fact that Jesus is the only begotten son. And we need to understand this as a, as a reference that's speaking theologically, not biologically. That the phrase, his son, links the son to the father in a unique way that highlights the deity of Jesus Christ. So that we can say that Jesus is indeed fully God. Jesus, or I should say, uh, Jesus, the term Jesus is the name given to him ultimately by God, but given to him through the angel to his parents. And, and it is a, a name that represents Jesus' humanity as well as his mission. His humanity as well as his mission. The, the name Jesus ultimately means God is Savior, coming from the, the Hebrew uh, translation of the name uh, Joshua. 
Matthew one twenty one records to us the angel's words to Joseph, which says, You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So not only is it his, his human name, but it is his name uh, that really uh, epitomizes his mission of what he came to do, to save people from their sins. And the term Christ, I'll remind you, is not Jesus' last name, but it's a title. It is the Greek translation of the Hebrew term Messiah. This refers to Jesus as the Messiah and the fulfillment of all the messianic prophecies of the Old Testament. So it ties together all of the messianic prophecies in the Old Testament and says their fulfillment is him in Christ. In, in, these, in this short term, his son, Jesus Christ, that's what John is encapsulating into this. In other words, you could say it is the apostolic teaching about Jesus Christ that must be believed. To believe in the name of Jesus, his son, Jesus Christ, means to believe that Jesus is both God and man, the perfect man who is the Messiah, the fulfillment of all the Old Testament promises, and the only one who can save us from our sins and give us eternal life. One commentator summarized it this way, and I quote, Belief in the name of Jesus means believing that his name contains the power which it signifies. So that the question is not simply one of right belief, but of trust in the one who is the object of the Christian confession. A Jesus who is not the Son of God and the Christ would not be able to save the readers from their sins and bring them into the light of God's presence. A Jesus who is less than the Jesus of the apostolic witness is incapable of doing what what that witness ascribes to him. He may be a moral and spiritual guide, but he cannot atone for human sins, give spiritual help in time of temptation, or offer any assurance of eternal life after death, unquote. Anything short of his son, Jesus Christ, is not the biblical Christ. You've invented uh, a Jesus of your own imagination, which is what our world often does. They don't like uh, the biblical Jesus, and so they, they uh, denuder him, and they, they make him just about love, and they even define that love uh, the way that they want to, rather than the way the Bible does. But understand that, that all of that is encapsulated into that short term that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ. Let's look at the second part of the commandment. So that's the first part, is that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ. Let's look at the second part, that we love one another just as he commanded us, that we love one another. We are commanded to love one another. We've been saying much about this, so I probably don't have to, to belabor this too much. But, but understand, beloved, that love is commanded, and the love that is commanded is a consistent, ongoing pattern in our lives. This isn't just a, a one-time deal. This is the kind of love where you can look at your life and see a consistent love for the brethren. And where you see failings, those failings need to be um, confessed to God and to seek forgiveness for them. But the issue here is the pattern of your life. If the pattern is not there, then there's no, you should have no assurance of salvation, at least not coming from that. Keep in mind, this, is a, this love is, is not an easy love. It's, it's not a, an affectionate love. This is not a love that follows feelings. This is a love that sacrifices 
for the object of that love. This is a sacrificial love. And Jesus said, you are to love one another even as I have loved you. So the, the, the example for us is the love that Christ showed for his disciples, ultimately laying his life down for them. But there's many other examples where he served them. For example, washing their feet when no one else would do it. He took that lowly role. So too, we are called at times to take that lowly role and to serve one another. This is a sacrificial love for the brethren. Not just a select group of the brethren. Not just for those that we like. This is a love for the brethren. If there are those who call the name of the Lord, and in our local church that certainly would include everybody here that that at least names the name of the Lord, who claims to, to follow Christ, that you are to love them as Christ has loved you. If, you. if you do any less than that, you are sinning against God. And if that pattern continues, then you should not have assurance of salvation. That, that's clearly what John is saying here. Understand that he says here that we are to, to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another just as he commanded us. Now, in the beginning of verse 23, we see this is his commandment. That his, that pronoun, uh, obviously refers to God because you could just back up and, and back up all the way to verse 21. If our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do the, pleasing, do the things that are pleasing in his sight. This is his commandment. So obviously it's referring to God in general. At the end of verse 23, there are those who say that, that the phrase, just as he commanded us, refers to Christ. Because they remember how Christ, in the, night before he was, the night he was betrayed, before he was crucified, how Christ commanded his disciples repeatedly to, command, to love one another. But I would say that John is purposely unifying the two here. And listen, listen, listen to, to um, how we need to process this. I, I believe that efforts to try to identify whether the antecedent to his, the pronoun his is the father or son is really pointless. Because on the one hand, the son is the one who actually gave the verbal command. We see that in scriptures. He's the one that gave the command to his disciples, John uh, 1334, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And, and Jesus repeated this command to love at least two more times in the hours before his betrayal and crucifixion. He probably did it more than that, but we are given two recorded in Scripture. In John 15, verses 12 and 17. So we know that Christ gave that command. Yet on the other hand, We also understand that everything that Jesus taught and commanded was given to him by the Father. There wasn't a single thing Jesus said on his own initiative. In John 12, uh, verses 49 and 50, Jesus says this, For I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. I know that his commandment is eternal life. Therefore, the things I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. So, yes, you can make an argument that Jesus is the one who actually gave the commandment to the disciples. But the Father is the one who prompted the Son to give that commandment. And again, just, it just shows the unity that, that the, the expression of one God, yet three persons, provides. This is, we don't have three gods. This is one God. 
in three persons. And the unity between the, the Son and the Father as to the source of the command to love should not surprise us, for Jesus often referred to the unity of the, between the Father and the Son. And in John 10.30, we're told that Jesus said this, I and the Father are one. I and the Father are one. And it was that claim to deity, to, to be God himself, why the Jews, in fact, uh, wanted to stone him to death, and ultimately the reason that they crucified him. But, but understand, beloved, we have been commanded to love. So in verse 23, John summarizes this main commandment, two subparts or two components, that is, belief in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and that we love one another, even as commanded us. He, he develops that a little further in the beginning of verse 24. He says this, the one who keeps his commandments abides in him and he in him. Now again, he uses the plural here. He uses the plural commandments. Again, showing that he has just, just more than just one single isolated command in mind. He has the fullness of the Lord's commandments in mind here. The one who keeps his commandments abides in him. The one who keeps is written in such a way that it shows the continuous ongoing nature. Not, not perfection, beloved, but it's consistent with everything that we've looked at in First John already. It's the pattern of your life. This describes the pattern. One who keeps. It's not perfection. It's direction. So the one who keeps his commandments abides in him. Now, the word abide means to remain in or remain with. It is a very rich term. Uh, it is a term which John uses here. He's used it before. He'll use it again. It's a term that originates with Jesus. In 15, John 15, John, uh, sorry, Jesus tells us, uh, gives us the illustration of the vine and the branches And it is from this analogy of the vine and the branches that we get the idea of understanding what it means to abide. It's such a rich illustration. Jesus says, I'm the vine, you are the branches. If you abide in me and I in you, you you will have that rich life flowing through you so that you'll bear much fruit. But to those branches who merely look like they're connected, they're not vitally connected Therefore, they don't have the resource of Christ and all that he provides. They're dead branches. They might look like they're alive for a while, but they are, don't have the richness of life in them. In other words, applied to salvation, without, without abiding in Christ, you are not really a child of God. Not at all. To abide is a verb which uh, is explained by D. Edmund, D. Edmund Hebert this way. He said it explains, the, or it marks, the closest and most permanent union between human and divine. I'll read it again. The word abide marks the closest and most permanent union between the human and the divine. And that's why John uses it here. Those who keep his commandments abides in him and he in him. And notice that, that John, in the first time in this letter, that the, that the abiding here is mutual abiding. And again, he just, he's just building on what he heard from Jesus and what Jesus said from John 15 and other places. It's not just that we abide in God, beloved. It's that if we are truly abiding in God, He is abiding in us. He's in us. He's connected to our lives. 
in ways that I can't explain to you. We just know that it's true. As one commentator explained, this is a truly significant um, biblical truth for us to latch on to. The reason is that the Old Testament prophets had promised that as part of the new covenant, that the dwelling place of God would be with his people. Ezekiel 37, 27. And John now depicts the fulfillment of this hope. I would say not the ultimate fulfillment, but the intermediate fulfillment. The ultimate fulfillment we'll see, we see in Revelation 21, 3, when we dwell with God in a way that we do not dwell with God right now. What a marvelous truth that God dwells with us. And this is why Peter, in, in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 4, tells us this. He says, For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Notice that term. So that by them, by these promises, you may become partakers of the divine nature. It's, it's not just that you are in Christ. Is it Christ is in you. That, that's, a, that's a blessed truth. And again, builds to the reasons why we can have assurance of salvation. He knows us. He's within us. He knows the very fabric of our being. He knows how we think. He knows our thoughts even before we think them. That is our God who we cast ourselves upon for salvation and help. But beloved, John says this, that it is through this keeping of the commandments that we know that we abide in him and he in him. Now now notice, beloved, John is not saying that obedience is the path to abiding. He's not saying that obedience is the criteria for abiding. Uh, abiding. He's not saying that obedience is how you qualify for abiding. Obedience is the characteristic that's demonstrated by someone who is abiding. Again, John's not teaching work salvation here. He's saying the fruit of abiding in Christ and Christ in you is obedience to the commandments of God. It is no different. If you want to know what it really means to abide in Christ, study how Jesus talks about the relationship between he and the Father. How he and the Father are one. He only does what the Father tells him to do. That he loves the Father and longs to do what the Father commands him to do. Jesus' Jesus model for us, or Jesus is a model for us in that way. We are to act in a similar way. We are to do the things the Lord commands us. We are to long to please Him. And if you truly abide in Him, that's going to be the longing of your heart, uh, even though you can't live out that to the perfection that you desire. But it is that, that obedience that then gives us, uh, it's an objective uh, evaluation of our obedience that helps us to know whether or not we have assurance of salvation. So that is the fifth builder of the assurance of our salvation. Let's look at the sixth, which we find at the end of verse 24. Blessed assurance comes from the Holy Spirit. He says this, by, we know by this that he abides in us 
by the Spirit whom he has given us. We know by this that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. Again, John clearly uh, wants to highlight, highlight in such a way we don't miss it, because he uses the word we know by this. We've seen that before uh, in verse 16. We know love by this. And then in verse 19, we will know by this. These are, these are like flag markers on a golf course. You know, without the flag markers, it's really hard to see where the hole is at from a distance. But the flag markers really help us to hone in and see uh, where, where the goal is. And that's what John is doing. He says, we know by this that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. We know by this that he abides in us. And notice that John's not saying, we know that we abide in him. He could have said that and it would have still been accurate. But the emphasis here is on God in you. If God is in you, if you have partaken of the divine nature, then you can have assurance of salvation. That's why he's using it, wording it this way. He's building on the reciprocal nature of abiding. And John says, this is how we know that God is abiding in us. He says, by the Spirit whom he has given us. By the Spirit. This is a reference to the Holy Spirit. In fact, uh, John only refers to the Spirit by the term the Spirit, uh, not by the Holy Spirit, but that is who he was referring to. This is the third member of the Trinity. Now, how does the Spirit work in our lives in this way? It could be a reference to the subjective work of God within us, which causes our hearts to know that we are children of God. If so, this would align with Paul's teaching in Romans and Galatians. For uh, Paul says there in Romans 8.15, You have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. And then in Galatians 4.6, Paul says, Because you are sons, God has sent forth his, the spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So both of those are talking about that subjective that subjective work of the Holy Spirit by which he helps us to cry out to God, not as our judge, but as our Father. And he uses an endearing term, Abba, Father, in both those texts. Abba, Daddy. Not, not, irreverent, not, not in a way that is uh, irreverential, but in a way that you just, it's like a, like a child calling out to his to his father. A little girl, a little, little boy crying out, Daddy. The Spirit does that work. That is true. But is that what John's doing here? The context seems to, to, to believe, leads me to believe that that's not exactly what he's referring to. Although if he was, it would be accurate. But remember what John is doing. He is building up the assurance mainly by the use of objective tests of faith. So John is most likely referring to the objective work of the Spirit in our lives. How does the Spirit objectively work in our lives? He does that through obedience to the commandments and love for the brethren. I see how this ties back into what he said. And the reason is, is because the love of the brethren and obedience to God is not something that we can muster up on our own. I mean, if we could obey God, if we could obey the brethren all on our own, why do we need Christ? We would have been able to perfectly obey the law. But we can't. We not only need forgiveness, but we need his empowerment to do the things that we wouldn't otherwise do. Obedience and love, uh, 
the kind of which we are called to, is, is not a human-only doable thing. These, these, are, these are commands uh, which we can't just conjure up on our own, actions that we cannot conjure up on our own, in our own wisdom and in our, in our own strength and in our own mindset. We need the Spirit to cause His wisdom, strength, and truths to richly dwell within us, to help us to obey the Lord's commandments, to help us to love each other as Christ has loved us. We need His enablement to walk with God, to have fellowship with God, to obey His commandments, to love the brethren as Jesus has loved us. When we do these things, we see the objective evidence of the Spirit's work within us, which enables us to know that God abides in us. When we know that God abides in us, we know that we have eternal life. And that's, that's, that's what He is building here. Beloved, understand that the Holy Spirit, though mentioned last in this this list of builders of insurance is the most significant. The Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, is, is the last builder of assurance that John mentions here, but he is certainly not the least. I would say, in fact, in this case, he's the most important builder of the assurance of salvation. For without the Holy Spirit working in your life, without his work of building you up, Building up your assurance, you would have no assurance at all, even trying to look at these other things. Because without his work, you wouldn't be obedient. Without his work, you wouldn't even be able to love one another as Christ has loved you. Understand that the Spirit directs and fuels these other builders of assurance. And it's ultimately the Holy Spirit's job to provide assurance of salvation. We talked a little bit about this uh, on Wednesday but, but we need to understand that we are not to play the role of the Holy Spirit in other people's lives. We are not to come into someone else's life and say and give them assurance of salvation. Sometimes well-meaning parents can do this. That's not our role. We cannot see the heart. The Holy Spirit is the one who provides assurance of salvation. The Holy Spirit doesn't need your job. So what do we do when someone comes to us with doubts about salvation? Someone who we have known to have, to have um, uh, has had a pattern of obedience or a pattern of faith in Christ in our lives, and they come to us with doubts. Do we play the, the Holy Spirit and say, oh, I, I know your past. I, I, I know I've seen your examples. You must be saved and provide them some assurance of salvation that way? I would encourage you not to do that. But what you can do is to encourage them to cast themselves upon the faithfulness of God. Going back on the faithfulness of God, going back to that is never wrong. It's never wrong. And if the person is genuinely saved, but just having some doubt of salvation, the Lord will make that plain to them. He will talk to them. He will, he will convince them through his, his word. Perhaps bringing conviction of sin that needs to be confessed in order for that assurance and freshness and joy of salvation to return to them. But the danger, if we start assuring people of their salvation, the danger is that we'll assure someone of salvation who is not really saved. And if they're, if they're convicted or they're concerned that they're not really saved and you give them some kind of assurance, you're actually working against the Spirit in that case because the Spirit's bringing conviction in their lives that they're not genuinely saved and that you're coming in unbeknownst to what the Spirit is doing and giving that person assurance and, and doing, working against the Spirit of God in their lives. So our job 
is not to provide assurance. Our job is to, to point people to the one who can provide assurance. And we can point people to the objective test of faith given, for example, in 1 John, or specifically in this passage, and walking a person through that and say, are these things true of your life? And if they are true, then you can say, based on the word of God, you can assure that you are a child of God. That's not you doing that. That's the word of God doing that. And that, that's the difference. So just point people to the word of God and then pray with them. Remember that God is not going to withhold his truth. He's just not going to withhold his truth. We, we read this morning in opening up the service, we read Ephesians 1. And there's an important truth I wanted to just to highlight in closing this morning and thinking about this. Ephesians 1, verse 5. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. He adopted us as sons. Now, a few here have adopted children. But think of yourself. If you adopted a child, would you want that child to know that, that he, she, was really your son, your daughter, or would you just play games with them and keep them baited and say, eh, I'm not really sure if you're permanent or not. I'm not sure really whether you're a keeper or not. No. You, you not only legally adopt them, you take them all the way in, and you want them to know that. You're not denying that they might have had a different biological mom or dad, but you're drawing them in and saying, you're mine, I love you, I'll care for you. I'll always be there. You don't have to worry. I'll be there to take care of you. That's what God's doing. And he wants you to know whether or not you have eternal life. If you have eternal life, he wants you to know that. That's not, that's not brash or arrogant to, to, to have the confidence that you have eternal life. Not at all. In fact, I would say Spurgeon points out that if you think that it's brash and arrogant to have assurance of salvation, Spurgeon says this, you're prideful because you're going against the word of God. The word of God says that you're to know. The word of God says that he wants us to know. So if you don't know, then you are to study the scriptures prayerfully. You can seek out help of your parents or help of the teachers from the church in helping to guide and evaluate your life to, to help you know whether or not you are saved. And if you are saved, rejoice in that. Right? Not the fact um, that, that just simply you know, but rejoice that the Lord has you in his hand, that you are truly his child. Remember, throughout this section, John uses the, the terminology or the idea of like father, like son. The characteristics of the father are going to be demonstrated in his children. And by looking at the characteristics, the objective characteristics of his children, you'll know who the parents are. Right? He's using that, that analogy. What a beautiful analogy. What, what, a, what a blessed God we have that gives us assurance of salvation in such a way where it's his power protecting us. I would like to read Romans eight twenty-eight to 39 for your consideration as we close. I'm just going to read this and then we'll close in prayer. 
And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom He predestined, He also called. And these whom He called, He also justified. And these whom He justified, He also glorified. What shall we say then to, those, to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him over for us all, how will He not also with Him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is He who died. Yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, For your sake we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor principalities, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, we want to just exalt and praise you for your work of grace that not only begins our faith, but also completes it. We thank you that you're the author and the the finisher of the faith of the one who has faith in Christ. Thank you, Lord God, that you not only save us and redeem us, but that you want us to know it. And that you make it very clear in your word that you want us to know. If we are truly your child, Lord, if we are truly your children, you want us to know that with certainty. So that that certainty could could just uh, open up the wellsprings of joy in our lives. That no matter what kind of circumstances we face, we can rejoice always. And we can rejoice in Christ in very difficult things if we have peace with you. And just thank you that you provide not only your grace, but also your peace. Lord, you are wonderful. You are marvelous. Help us to contemplate these truths and and apply them to our lives, Lord God, such that they're not just... um, Theological truths that we hear one moment and forget the next. Because these truths are to resonate in our lives every day. To give you thanks for making us your children. And for any who are here this morning, Lord, or might listen to the message later, who are not so convinced that they are yours, please help them to study your word carefully and depend upon you. Bring them to saving faith, true saving faith in you, and true knowledge of the Son, Jesus Christ. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.